This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast together with my colleague uh, Tony Prescott. And we're here today with uh, Randy Beer, one of the speakers of our BCBT summer school. And and Randy, you have been now for quite a quite a while pushing a very specific view on how we should understand brain behavior and environment. So so what what's that specific perspective you bring to bear on that? Well, I, I mean, part of it is just that we should look at brain, uh, body, and environment as the unit of analysis. Mm-hmm. That we shouldn't just focus on neural activity shouldn't just focus on anatomical sort of connectivity of brains and so on, that we need to think of them in context. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, I guess I've primarily, until very recently, which I'll talk about, um, pushed the idea that we need to think about this brain-body environment system as a coupled dynamics, as coupled dynamical systems, and mm-hmm. we need to use tools from dynamical systems theory to try and understand uh, the behavior that such things produce. Mm-hmm. But lately what we've been doing and what I mentioned in my talk was I also think we can bring other uh, bodies of mathematics to bear on these systems. In particular, we've been exploring the use of information theory mm-hmm. and then the relationship between mm-hmm. dynamics and information. Right. But, uh, but, but before we get down and dirty on that, I think um, you, you also... You could now argue if you say, well, the unit to analyze is actually brain, body, and environment. I could say, well, that's nice. Now you have just complexified the problem and you will still be forced to sort of decompose that or or split it up in some way, right? So how does that not get you in trouble? Well, I mean, I guess that presupposes that splitting things up is is a bad thing. I think you always have to make some splits when you talk about brain, body, environment system. Mm-hmm. You've taken uh, a, a physical universe and you've carved it up into what's the brain and what's the body mm-hmm. and what's the environment. So I, I, I don't necessarily have an opposition to making to making splits, but I think the focus when you're studying, uh, say, the brain, body, environment system from a dynamical point of view is on the interaction between the components right. rather than mm-hmm. thinking about each of the components in isolation mm-hmm. and imagining that the, the total behavior is just some kind of a sum mm-hmm. of the individual behaviors. Right. But then, on, so on top of that, you also made a pretty strong point, I thought, by saying, well, I don't necessarily want to advocate a single view on how we should understand these systems, and I certainly don't want to make any ontological commitments to any of these views. So wh- wh- why are you saying that? Why are you, why are you so strong? Well, I, I think there's been a lot of debate about, say, let's just focus on the brain because that's often what this debate involves. The brain is uh, a computer. The brain is an information processing system. The brain is a dynamical system. The brain is a prediction machine. The brain is a complex network and so on and so forth. Um, what I tried to do in my talk was suggest that it might be more fruitful to reformulate that a little bit into, uh, so that's sort of an ontological claim, into more of an epistemological claim, mm-hmm. uh, which is simply that underlying each of those positions, there's some body of mathematics, information theory, dynamical systems theory, um, Bayesian theory, uh, formal language, formal theory of computation, which isn't intrinsically right or wrong. It's kind of a lens through which we can look at 
the operation of a system. Mm -hmm. And I think the focus should be on the utility of using these various lenses as mean, as a way to understand, to make predictions about, um, to make to get interesting insights into the systems that mm -hmm. we look at. In that sense, dynamical systems theory isn't right or wrong as compared to information mm -hmm. theory or Bayesian whatever. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of under what conditions are these different things useful. Now, that's not to say that I don't want a general theory. Mm -hmm. It's just to say that I don't think any of the things that have been put on the table are really formulated in a way that 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 they are. Mm -hmm. They're offering such theories. Part of the thing, I was talking with Tony earlier, it's not clear how you would ever definitively test one of these things. Mm -hmm. What experiment would you do to disprove the statement that the brain is a dynamical system? Mm -hmm. What statement, mm -hmm. what, what test would you do to disprove the idea that the brain makes predictions? Mm -hmm. but, but you could also argue that this partially um, just uh, comparing apples and oranges because the examples you give, dynamical systems, information theory, are methods, right? And methods, you could say, are by definition neutral towards That's the ontological point. status, That's right? the point. I mean, they're not, mm -hmm. they're not theories. But I don't think these other things are really theories either. Mm -hmm. If anything, I think they're pre-theoretical sort mm -hmm. of intuitions mm -hmm. about how things must be in order to accomplish the behavior that right. the systems mm -hmm. produce. But I think that, that begs the question, though, if these aren't uh, general theories, what, what would a general theory look like in your view? I mean, how would you go, go about starting to build some parsimonious general description of, of, for instance, the brain? Yeah, so, I mean, I don't have one to offer. What, I, what I'm arguing for is a methodology to get there. And the methodology is not uh, this discussion we've just had about different mathematical languages, the methodology is this sort of toy models approach, okay, that we need to start with simple enough models that raise these issues that we're trying to understand and build a theory for that, and then try to incrementally extend mm -hmm. it. Now, I'm not saying that's the only way to go, but if you look in science, I think historically fundamental theories have generally been built around toy models, which were then subsequently extended. I'm not saying you can't build sort of empirical theories in other ways, but fundamental theories in science have typically been built that way. So you're saying it's too early to say what a general theory might yes. look like? Yes, I think that's Well, I'm not statement. sure if I would agree with that. I mean, if you look at theories also in physics, people would basically be trying to, to explain natural phenomena that they would be confronted with, and they would find validity of, of their explanations in making predictions you can test, right? So it's not necessarily similar kind of toy systems as you well, as well, What you I'm study. talking about is, um, so for example, take motion. Mm -hmm. Okay, if you look at the world 350 years ago, motion is a really complicated thing. Birds fly, waves crash on the beach, um, rocks slide down the sides of mountains, uh, lights move across the sky. What, what possibly, what possible uh, principles could, could underlie all of that? And th the fact is that people didn't even recognize those as being the same things 350, 400 years ago. So if you started out trying to build a theory of these things like that, you would be in trouble. And of course, that's not how it developed. Galileo, for example, just to pick a, pointing, a starting point, looked, considered the motion of balls across frictionless planes. And he argued that if you thought about that, which by the way is quite different from what you actually see if you roll a ball mm -hmm. across the floor, um, in particular, friction brings it to a stop. But what he realized was that that's uh, a surface appearance, which is actually not what you would expect in this highly idealized case 
of a frictionless of a object moving frictionlessly across across a plane. Ising models are an example of that, um, where you, you took a really simple model trying to get a handle on what phase transitions were fundamentally about. Mm -hmm. uh, I mentioned in my talk, uh, there's a lot of interesting models in quantum gravity now, which are which are in principle incapable of accounting for our actual universe, and yet they're designed as conceptual tools to kind of play with issues like what does it mean to quantize time, mm -hmm. which is an issue that comes up a lot. Yeah, so this, this is a really important point, right? Because it really means, okay, um, what is the ontological status in the end of the models that we try to study? And, and you're following a very, I think, a, a well-defined route where you're saying, well, let's not be over-enthusiastic about what we can really achieve today. Let's be systematic and focus first on our methods and sharpen these methods on test cases that we can sort of control and understand. And maybe out of that will come sufficient insight to start to think about theory. This, this is how I, how I hear... Well, again, I, you keep using methods, but I don't think of them as methods. I think of them as mathematical languages. They're not methods. Evolutionary algorithms is a method. Um, dynamical systems theory is not a method. It's a mathematical language that you can apply to any system that fits a certain form, namely that you can have a state space, a time set, and an evolution operator. Mm -hmm. you can describe those things, then you've got it. I don't think it's a contradiction, though. You, no, you described it as a lens, which kind of... So it, it's it's something that you use on the outside. Yeah, it's a language. It. It's a language yeah. that you use to talk about something. Um, I, I'm not saying that all modeling takes that form. It's one of the reasons why I emphasize this term toy models, which mm -hmm. is what they're typically called in physics, because I think it's a, a particular kind of model that in the behavioral and brain sciences, most people don't realize. Right. Uh, typically, what modeling means in the behavioral and brain sciences, biology mm. in general is... No, wait, I really try to characterize what you're doing yes. in those terms. Right? Okay. So uh, how, I, how I read or how I listen to what you're saying, yep. how I understand it is to say, well, let's first sharpen these languages that give me this lens to look at, if you want, nature... Once I've done that sufficiently and I've sharpened these languages, then we can start to worry about theory. But theory is not right now our highest priority. Uh, no, I don't think I don't think that's accurate. Um, what I'm what I'm trying to put forward, for example, in the talk, I basically laid out what you might call I didn't use the word, but we've used it elsewhere, kind of the information flow architecture mm -hmm. of this uh, relational categorization agent. That's something that one might imagine being the basis of an information processing theory that you could imagine building on lots, for lots of other mm -hmm. agents. What, are the, what is the pattern of flow of information over time across all the elements of the system? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I, I don't think, I understand why you're saying this, but I don't, I don't view myself as basically saying we should postpone theory and just focus on methods. Mm -hmm. I rather see myself as saying we should try to build theory around these toy models first mm -hmm. and then try to extend it. But I guess what, what other people are saying, which, which is different from you, is, um, for instance, Gary Marcus was here earlier this week, and he was saying in quite a strong way uh, that uh, symbol processing, he was using the example of list processing, is a fundamental mechanism that the brain must use. So he's taking something that we've 
we've learned from uh, symbolic AI, and he's saying this isn't just a tool for thinking about how the brain does computation. The brain really does computation in in this kind of way, or the the brain really does solve the problems it has in this sort of way. And I think in the past, I mean, you may have had a stronger position, for instance, in terms of dynamical systems. But are you saying now that all of these approaches, which are using uh, the, these tools or methods or lenses, whatever, not just to study the brain, but as metaphors for understanding the brain. You're saying that that's, that that's no longer a good way. I think the metaphors can be very misleading at this point. I, I, like I said, I, the way I would say it is how would you empirically, so I didn't hear the talk, I can't sure. comment directly, yeah, yeah. but how would you empirically resolve the hypothesis that the brain is a dynamical system? It's just not... It's not, and, and the same thing true with information processing or symbol processing or so on. I'm not sure, I don't see what experimental program would resolve that question. I guess you'd have to be more specific in terms of what kind well, of dynamical system We can answer was. this, right? Because you could argue that people like uh, Zhao Jing Wang and, and Gustavo Deco here, uh, who actually are applying this, the dynamical systems view of, let's say, attractor landscapes, to complex brain dynamics, trying to explain the, the properties of prefrontal cortex in particular, uh, trying to explain behavioral phenomena like attentional selection and so on. So I could argue that there are there's actually a, a pretty uh, prominent movement in computational neuroscience doing that directly. But that sounds like exactly what I meant by um, using the lens of dynamical systems theory. Mm -hmm. Okay, I don't see how any of that is an ontological claim it's saying mm -hmm. the utility of the dynamical systems language is mm -hmm. quite high for mm -hmm. at least some subset right. of mm -hmm. brain processes. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, there's been this debate very much in the hippocampal literature on whether you might find a, a memory a memory shaped like an attractor landscape in CA3 of the hippocampus, right? And then um, people observe that if you smoothly change environments, you actually don't have very stable responses in that system. And then they would say, well, here, you see, these cannot be attractors because if it's an attractor, you should jump into that same state if the environment is the same, right? Um, however, then it was shown that, that under continuous plasticity, actually, you might have attractor landscapes that are also are reshaping themselves. So you don't necessarily always follow the same, same attractor. So I think in that domain, people really have been trying to, if you want to be pretty literal and saying, well, this dynamic systems picture of memory is literally captured in that structure. And I, I hear you saying like, well, this, this might be the, a mistake. This might be an over-interpretation. I mean, whenever you look through a mathematical lens, it focuses you on certain kinds of questions. Looking through the lens of information theory does not lend itself to, for example, bifurcations, mm -hmm. right? It, so if you look through the lens of dynamical systems theory, of course, the vocabulary that you're going to be bringing to bear are going to be things like attractors mm -hmm. and bifurcations, but not just those. That was part of the point I made in my talk. Transient dynamics, which is sort of what you're mm -hmm. referring to, um, is also to be expected. Uh, all the focus on attractors, I think, in dynamical systems theory over the years has been a bit of a, a special case because mm -hmm. we know that uh, what you take dynamical systems and drive them with lots of signals from an external environment, you're, you're almost never going to be in true attractors. You're almost always going to be in transient, mm -hmm. in transient structures. So I, again, I don't see anything inconsistent there. Using a particular language uh, suggests or, or makes it more natural or gives you the tools to answer certain kinds of questions and not other ones. Mm -hmm. So it's not at all surprising that 
the tool, the language of dynamical systems uh, applied to the system you're describing mm-hmm. would suggest right. those kinds mm-hmm. of those kinds of avenues. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is the statement, the statement that um, the brain is a dynamical system is not a very theoretically interesting statement. Um, it's kind of like saying that uh, uh, gravitation is a differential mm-hmm. system, right? Mm-hmm. That's not the sort of theory, quote unquote, mm-hmm. that you that's put forward in physics. But that's the analogous statement, I think. Mm-hmm. Rather, the statement the statement that you see in physics is something like. Um, uh, Gravitation involves an inverse square law of attraction, mm-hmm. say, for Newton. Or gravitation is a curvature of space-time, which whose, whose particular form I can describe mm-hmm. using differential equations. Mm-hmm. That's the, the analogy I'm trying right. to make. It's sort of at the wrong mm-hmm. level to make these, mm-hmm. these uh, grand sweeping statements. Mm-hmm. But uh, Take, for instance, the statement that the brain is a dynamical system. So uh, people have made that statement uh, in order to point out that what it's not, and, and for people like Esther Tellen, for instance, she would make that statement very strongly because she would try to counteract a view, for instance, that knowledge uh, is iconic, that there are representations that are maybe pre-specified in some way and that come to life when you do cognition. And she would have presented a very powerful argument, I think, to say that, look, these representations don't have to pre-exist, that if you take a dynamic systems perspective, then in the uh, when you engage in a behavior, the, the mind generates these uh, representations in an emergent way. Even You might not even use the word representation. Many people would object to that. So really, it's a very strong position about what the brain is not, perhaps as much as, as about what the brain is. And powerful explanations can follow, for instance, about the development of behavior, how we come from a system that can do very little to a system that is capable of this behavioral complexity. So within psychology, certainly, I think that's been a a powerful uh, approach. Maybe we shouldn't call it a theory, but a powerful approach for for refining our ideas to think about what cognition is. Yeah, and again, I'm just repeating myself, but the fact is when you apply different lenses to a system, they're going to suggest different things because they they bring different vocabularies to to bear, they bring different perspectives to bear. And if you take something like the lens of dynamical systems theory, which is this is exactly what Esther did and applied it to a kind of problem that people had never thought of in those terms before, it's going to be very productive. Which is not, again, re- addressing the question of testing or what it means to say the brain is a dynamical mm. system. But, but there are, there's sort of an intermediate issue then, uh, before we start to look at the specific test case that you analyzed, mm-hmm. um, you cannot completely disconnect the lens you take and your ontological commitments. Because that lens, like if you take the lens of dynamical systems, it will bias the kind of data you will consider and what properties you consider. And in that sense, it will bias your interpretation of what these things really mean. That, that's all true, except yeah. I think the statement about ontological commitments. Because if you take a lens provisionally, the way I'm suggesting, mm-hmm. then you're not making ontological mm-hmm. commitments, or at least you're not making absolute mm-hmm. ontological commitments. You're basically mm-hmm. saying, um, I think it might be useful to look at this system through the lens of dynamical mm-hmm. systems theory. So for the purposes of doing that, I'm going to think of it mm-hmm. as having this state space and, and so on right. and so forth. But it, I, if I'm doing that provisionally, if I'm mm-hmm. just as likely to later pick up another lens, mm-hmm. then I'm not making any fundamental mm-hmm. commitment. Whereas some of these other things that mm-hmm. you're suggesting are really fundamental no, but, commitments. Uh, sure. The, 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 but we cannot deny that there might be biases. 
Absolutely. Right? In, every every on, lens on has a bias. This, every is lens. A, this was the point. Which is, which is on, why right? I think it's useful to emphasize that one should have a set of lenses in one's right. toolkit. Okay. Yeah. And the second thing is, of course, you now say, look, I, I propose an approach where we in detail analyze toy systems, and this is the way forward because the toy systems are sort of more controllable. But of course, there's then this risk that if you choose your toy system incorrectly, that you're going to sort of dig the tunnel in the wrong direction. Right, so how do you make sure that your toy systems has the constraints that help you to generalize towards a phenomenon you really want to capture? So basically any methodology has pluses and minuses. And uh, in general, that is certainly a concern with the methodology that we're talking about. The way, the way I'm trying to address it is, as I mentioned at the very end of my talk, I think we've honed some of these tools to the point where they're worth trying on a biological system. Um, which is a very different sort of model that we're doing mm. there. It's not a toy model. It's intended to be an empirically testable model. And so you have to engage in the prediction, experimental test, refinement kind of loop, which is not something that makes any sense for the toy models because mm. they're not intended to making any right. predictions. And so this is a big reason why I've been shifting to, to applying evolutionary algorithms and these dynamical and information theoretic uh, analysis techniques to C. elegans because mm -hmm. I think it might be um, the kind of, of actual biological system mm -hmm. where we can try these things out. Right. And they, it may fail in mm. various ways. And mm. so that's, that is ultimately mm. the, te the, the epistemological right. test, right? Does it, it, yes. Are these useful or mm -hmm. not? Exactly. But now, so the test case that you, that you discussed was um, a population, if you want, of very simple agents that uh, might be static or active, and that we're supposed to to detect uh, a looming a looming object, right? And um, well, you, you define this as a categorization task, right? Yeah, you can call it classification if you yeah. want to. But the no, point no. is, it's not just detecting; it's actually making some discrimination about mm -hmm. the relationship between the two objects it sees in sequence. Okay. Yeah. So, but the, the, what's important here? There's there's let's say a simple environment that has certain properties. That's the looming stimulus, right? There's a, there's a simple embodied agent because it can move in space. And then there is a, there is a control system that, that if you want, transforms properties of that stimulus into a reaction, if you want. Um, now, and then the control system, this neural-like control system that you were in the end studying with either dynamical systems approaches or an information, information theoretic approach, you generated many, many, many uh, exemplars of that using a genetic algorithm. Yes. Okay. Um, so then you compared, let's say, the static case versus the active case. And, and you also showed us in this analysis that if you analyzed, in particular, this neural controller of this agent using either a dynamical systems perspective or an information theoretic perspective, you would have a very complementary dissection, if you want, on, of the functional properties of this agent. Mm -hmm. So um, so, so what, the, what does the... the dynamical systems lens on that system now exactly tell us? What do we learn from it? Well, so for example, one of the things that, that doesn't come up at all in the information theoretic analysis is how important the bifurcation idea is that there's this discontinuous change in the system's response properties. That's just not a notion in information theory. Um, another one has to do with the role of the discontinuities that the sensors introduce. I mean, these, again, are not notions in information theory. You're just seeing these, these generalized correlations being developed and distributed around over time. On the other hand, um, one thing that's not so obvious from 
uh, a, the dynamical systems analysis alone, because it deals with sort of the full state space of dynamics, is which particular combinations of elements are the most appropriate ones to be focusing on at any given point in time, which is something that the information theoretic analysis, I think, brought out much more cleanly mm -hmm. than the dynamical analysis does. But as you say, they're complementary. Mm -hmm. So it's not like uh, either, either is... Uh, is inconsistent with what the other one says, but they, they bring out different features of the system. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it's really interesting to look for bridges between these different stories, which mm -hmm. was the final part I wasn't able to right. get to in the talk. Okay. But now the the variation across these populations that you analyze, because in the end you, you actually analyzed one exemplar, I think, from this whole population. You yeah, we actually looked two. at about 10 in, oh. of each, but only okay. one in this great detail. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, you generate these with, with genetic algorithms, is that is that a key ingredient of this experiment, or it could have been any way in which you can generate a variable population? I, I, I think the latter, yeah. As, okay. I think any stochastic optimization technique would have been fine the way okay. I'm using genetic algorithms. Right. Um, but I do think the stochastic feature mm -hmm. is important because otherwise you, you end up biasing mm -hmm. things, so you tend to fall into the same architecture each time, and you're not really exploring the space of possibilities right. in the same okay. way. That's, I think, the so, important feature. Right. But then the, the fixed feature was the number of, of sensors that you had at the, at the surface of this uh, agent yes. to, to detect the looming stimulus. Uh, then you had three hidden units that would sort of transform the sensor state into a motor state, which was encoded by two units that could, for the active case, drive you to the left or to the right. Well, even in the passive case, they drive you. That's why I don't really, I don't really like the static versus... At okay. In both cases, they, in the end, they have to move to express their decision. The difference mm -hmm. is just whether or not they move only when the second object is falling or whether they move during the time that both objects are falling. Anyway, okay. just a minor correction. All right. No, no, this is good. Yeah. So then the task itself was indeed, if you want, you had a training, a training case and a, and a test case, right? You had a... Um, there was a probe trial second, and then there was an exposure trial. And then, yeah, so there's then, a queue and then a, a probe. Right, yeah. and then between those, the system could, in this network structure, maintain some sort of memory if its dynamics would allow that. Yes. Right? Um, now, how many different network templates did you find that would give rise to the same kind of dynamical landscape? Well, so it depends what you mean by the same. Um, you're going to every, tell me every, uh, every single run comes up with different parameters. Mm -hmm. So the problem is interestingly rich enough that it's not like there's just a unique solution. Um, and that's, I think, very, very typical. Mm -hmm. But so, so the details of every, say, dynamical analysis or every informational analysis would be different. But the general idea of having some, um, some transient manifold evolving through the state space of the entire system, not just the inner neurons, mm -hmm. but that's what I focused on for the passive agent, um, applies across the board. Mm -hmm. um, the geometry of that particular manifold at the end of, Q, of the Q stage is very interesting. And also which dimensions of the state space mm -hmm. that manifold actually um, transits. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, in the passive agent, it's basically the, um, the inner neuronal state space that's important. And as you pointed out, mm -hmm. it's some of them more important than others for mm -hmm. that particular agent. Right. Um, in the active agents, one way of thinking about it is, I didn't show a dynamical analysis of an active agent, but you could do it. It's not the extent of that manifold in the inner neuronal state space. It's actually its extent in the uh, 
body position part of the state space, which after all is just part of the total right. state space of the system. So, so those kinds of considerations and these issues about where, how does the pattern of information, how does the information flow through the system, um, and what, what, what and so was on. After, what it was after, Randy, is to say, look, you, you generate like, a, let's say, a thousand exemplars. Right. I don't know how big the pool really was. Was it a thousand? Or no, that's, it's smaller than that. Okay, it's whatever. Dozens. Okay. But then you would, I would expect, but maybe I'm wrong here, that at least if you, if you would analyze the, the, the from a from from now a uh, dynamical systems perspective, all these ex uh, and the whole population of exemplars you have, yes. you would expect some prototypical forms of dynamics to emerge, and you you characterized some of that, let's say the manifolds, but but that to me would more suggest okay, where do we look for these invariants? So can you be more specific about the invariant patterns you might see? Like, for instance, in the example, you should have indeed saw one neuron doing most of the job. I mean, it's my, right. correct, it's right. my characterization. Was that like a, 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 a pattern emerging in, let's say, 30% of your exemplars? I, I don't have the statistics for okay. it. But, but, I mean, in general, there's no reason that it would be one neuron mm -hmm. over the other. There's no reason in general why it couldn't be multiple neurons. Mm -hmm. and, and you do see examples mm -hmm. of all of no, that. But why I'm asking you this and why this is important to me is that if we want to understand biological systems or brains or what have you, should we focus on the invariant patterns across exemplars? We say, okay, this is now a guiding principle, like the retina projects to the thalamus, okay? And we see that in all of them. So this is, a of course, it's, it's a completely different kind of description. But sure. So the question is, in this dynamical picture, if we, if we start to complexify and as oh no, every individual is very individual, there, there are no general features, then it might not give us a lot of leverage no, to understand how not. these things work. I right? understand exactly what you're saying, and that's why I'm saying that if you're looking for generalities in these agents, you need to look at the level of these transient manifolds and the way in which they're transformed. You need to look at the way they're split. Mm -hmm. That's an important feature that you show up over and over again when you when you drop the second agent, this this curve of the states. The second pattern, you mean? When you drop the second object. No. Uh, the curve of states gets spread into a sheet of states, and then bifurcation slice that sheet into a decision. Mm -hmm. That is true across the board. Okay. So I, uh, one thing that I'm not clear about is that you you seem to be doing two things here with these toy systems. One is to to first of all uh, refine and sharpen your lenses and say how are these lenses useful for understanding these model systems. Uh, and the second thing is maybe going towards a a, a, a set of theories about these kinds of systems yes. and ones that you might build out of these, where where perhaps you might start to develop a kind of taxonomy. Of simple machines uh, and or machines with these kinds of simple neural circuits. Uh, I mean, is that right? Is that a goal, or is? I, I mean, not, I don't know about taxonomy well, specifically, well, a, a, but a theory about uh, these yes, kinds of machines. Yes, and, that's what and I'm what trying to do. get at. And again, the point is that we're going to be testing these same ideas in the C. elegans models that we're building now. Right. So, I mean, the idea we didn't. So, you're right. Part of it has to do with tool development. Some of the information theoretic tools we're using didn't exist before we started trying to do an information theoretic analysis of these agents. Some of them did. Some of them were developed specifically to do that. Now that we have the tools, we can apply them to other systems like the C. elegans, the C. elegans system. So, part of it is tool development, but also part of it is that as you look through these different lenses and start to formulate. Uh, explanations of what you see through that lens, those become tentative, at least, um, frameworks for trying to actually build theories. 
So the thing I mentioned, if the information theory is there's now we ha now have this notion of sort of an information flow architecture, mm -hmm. okay, which transcends the, the detailed elements and the actual quantitative information about there's 0.37, you know, um, general mutual information between these two elements, but it leads us to focus on certain kinds mm -hmm. of what's the overall pattern of flow through the system? What are the appropriate uh, variables to look at? What are the appropriate informational quantities and so on? That's something we can apply to other systems like the C. elegans system. And is that something that's going towards a reduced description of the machine? Possibly. I think, I think, it's, I think it's, a, it's an idea at this point. I mean, and we're going to be testing it, as I said, in the C. elegans system. But now there's something interesting about the C. elegans example, that C. elegans, as you also pointed out yourself, we have 302 identified neurons. Yes. They are connected in, in a rather heterogeneous way. Um, as are most nervous systems, actually, when you look at them. No, <laughs> but I mean, what I mean with that is that they don't really implement any kind of parallelism, really. It's more... I have no uh, idea what you mean by that. They're actually, well, it's it's not actually that a, a highly recurrent network. No, but what I mean with that is it's not that we have, let's say, basic circuit templates that are replicated in a parallel fashion. Right, it, it's a very complicated. Yeah, there's no there. there are no cortices in C. elegans. For That's instance, true. right? Yeah. Uh, but neither is there a cerebellum or a basal ganglion, and so yes. on, right? So right. you have you have a, a, a bunch of cells that, that are complex in them in themselves, and that have let's say heterogeneous, asymmetric kinds of interactions that we don't fully understand that we want to understand. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of yeah. symmetry too. There's bilateral symmetry, for example. Sure, yeah. of, of absolutely. Yeah. But um, what I'm driving at I is understand. to say that already at this sort of in this topological nature the C. elegans nervous system might be rather different from the agent you have been using. And it, it, it sort of illustrates this point I made earlier. Like if you go for a toy system, it should, of course, be a segue into this natural system you want to understand. And now yeah. I could say, well, the agent you studied definitely has a parallelism in this in its organization that you have a bunch of, of, of uniform receptors that only vary in their placement on the periphery. The same holds for the internet, three interneurons. They're in some sense identical, but they yeah. vary in how they're interconnected, whatever, but there's a symmetry there again. And the same for these output units. So this mm -hmm. kind of parallelism and symmetry, you will not find in the C. elegans brain. So has that then be the right? So why would I therefore believe that, this, that the lens you, you, have, you have sort of sharpened on, on this artificial agent would help you to yeah, get well, access I mean, to the system. You don't need system. to believe it because it's we're we're trying it. So I sure, mean, no, the, 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 I res, know. the result of that will will either support or not mm -hmm. the the idea. I mean, it's not it's not something one has a belief in, except maybe in whether or not one spends time pursuing this direction. Mm -hmm. But in the end, we're going to find out whether some of the mm -hmm. things I just described to you in our dynamical and information analysis of the mm -hmm. relational categorization agent right. carries over mm -hmm. to C. elegans. So what have you found so far? Um, The only thing I can say right now is is we've done an information theoretic analysis, uh, which isn't published yet, on the C. elegans circuits and the tools that we developed and mm. the ideas okay. and especially this notion of information flow architecture turned out to be extremely powerful mm. in characterizing what's going okay. on. Because even in C. elegans, so even in biological systems, you have a tremendous amount of variability. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, there are a number of famous examples of this which I could get mm -hmm. into, but I'm not sure we want to spend the time. Uh, there's every reason to expect that that the variability that you see in these toy models using evolutionary algorithms is in fact a desirable quantity uh, feature of them because it's actually more reflective mm -hmm. of what you see in biology 
than this idea that there's the one true sure. brain or the one true whatever. But it's interesting, right? Because traditionally, I think initially you, you worked a lot on the dynamical systems perspective. Yes, and I, I did. think the information theoretic one is a bit more recent as far yes. as I oh, understand. Yes, oh, absolutely right? it is, yeah. But it's interesting now with C. elegans, your first su success, if you want, has been with the information theoretic measure. Well, that's not entirely true. Lens. I mean, so, so we, we published about a year and a half ago our first paper on this model, and that mm -hmm. was basically much more dynamical in its, in its on analysis. On the C. elegance model. On the C. elegance okay. model, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the more recent work that we're doing that's looked at the information mm -hmm. flow architecture idea in the context of C. elegance. Okay. So what's interesting with the C. elegance is that we do know the full connectivity of the circuit. Yes, but we know almost yeah. nothing about the biophysics and neurophysiology mm -hmm. underlying but, well, it. So, exactly, but I mean, yeah. but we can with this relatively simple model say, okay, given the connectivity, how much more can we infer yeah. via these approaches? So it's a, it's a good model system yeah. uh, in which to do that, and then we can think, well, if, if we knew the full connectome of the human brain, what could we learn from that? So mm -hmm. yeah. in that way, it's a, it's that's part of your strategy. Yeah. Indeed. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we looked at in this previous paper that's been published for a while. There's tremendous variability when you when you, we've evolved a hundred um, chemotaxis models for C. elegans, and there's tremendous variability in um, the parameters that you get, even though behaviorally they're almost identical in mm -hmm. terms of their. So again, it just shows you that this this happens even with mm -hmm. those constraints. They're just not they're not mm -hmm. sufficient constraints. But what's what's intriguing in this work that we're that's currently in press is that it looks like if you when you look at the information architecture of these, I think about 70 some of them turn out to be really high performing of the 100. So some fail and some don't do very, you know, they don't, they don't fail, but they don't do as well as possible. So maybe the subset of 70 of them um, all share almost identical information architectures, mm -hmm. even though they have tremendous variability at the parametric mm -hmm. level. So when you have... Uh when you're looking at C. elegans, you have the connectivity, but you have all these other gaps. Then the yes. methodology that you have with your toy models, which is not exhaustively, but to fairly comprehensively explore the space of possible yeah. models I mean, using... It, that's exactly right. Algorithms. I mean, the, the str you, you can't do that anymore. So you can't explore the whole of the design space, can you? Or how, how much... Well, I mean, you, you can at? never explore the whole. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's exactly the... I, I guess I don't quite understand the question. That's exactly the strategy, is that... We take what's known about C. elegans, in our case, namely the connectivity and the behavior and some physiology to do with the sensors, actually. That's, that's actually been pretty well worked out. And we constrain our evolutionary algorithm by that information, right. and we use the evolutionary algorithm to fill in the remaining details, namely the, the sort of uh, neurophysiological parameters, which are unknown. And if you do that once, it's not very interesting because that's just a solution. But if you do it many, many times, then you start to be able to talk about the ensemble of solutions, and that has interesting structure in it. But, I mean, the number of unknowns, I imagine, is quite high. Yes. So, uh, and even with the genetic algorithms, you you cannot exhaustively explore No, no, that again, space. exhaustive so, is not so possible. But the so thing you're is sampling in, a, a larger space. You're sampling so, yeah. a space and you're looking for patterns in right. that. So if every single individual is completely different at all levels of analysis, then you've learned nothing, right? But what's interesting is they can vary quite a bit at the level of the individual neurophysiological parameters, and yet you start to see patterns when you look, say, dynamically or information theoretically across the ensemble. Okay, but the question, I guess, is that, uh, you know, it, 
with C. elegans, it's a test case for your, for your methodology. You know, so how much, uh, how big can the space of unknowns be before this strategy of trying to explore it with mm. with GAs is going to break down? And yeah, you won't, you and, won't see the very. Big I mean, I don't. I can't give you a magic number. Right. In part, that has to do with how much computation you can throw at it, uh, which particular optimization techniques you use, and it has, of course, a lot to do with the system you're studying, which yeah. a priori we don't know you know, how much structure or not might be in that system. But then also with your analysis tools, you're maybe going to want to automate some of the analysis beyond sort of... Possibly. I mean, I think, so the biggest systems we've tended to do in our toy models have been sort of 30 neurons or less. And so I think C. elegans is actually a, a good next step. We're talking about an order of magnitude if you think about the entire nervous system mm -hmm. rather than just the bits we're looking at so far. So it strikes me as the right mm -hmm. scale to be going from 30 to 300 rather right. than, say, 30 to, you know, 300 billion or something. Right. But, but have, you, have you learned from your toy models ways of uh, doing analyses with dynamic systems and information theory that you could say automate it and say these well, I mean, are the some of things so many many years ago I built a system called Dynamica that that basically let you automate some aspects of dynamical right. analysis and we've always used that right. um, we don't yet have such a system for information theoretic analysis but certainly as you gain experience with it it's mm -hmm. easier and easier to write code that sort of modularizes mm -hmm. bits and pieces of it and then you can sort of throw that at a big complicated system and just let it grind away for a few days and give you the results. So I think so, that's so part could, of building the tools, but it's an ongoing yeah. process. Um, but part of the tools could be to say, look, this is the sort of thing I'm looking for from the analysis. And then, you know, you, there's sort of a meta-analysis. Yeah, I mean, ideally that would be the case. I think for the most part, there's no sort of magic wand to analysis. It's a creative activity. And so it, it at least present tends to involve people engaging with a set of tools uh, right. with some system and mm -hmm. using their own intuitions and, and thought processes to sort of guide whether or not you could ultimately automate the whole thing. I have, I have no idea, mm -hmm. possibly, but. But now for the C. elegans, just could you give us an idea of the unknowns? That means of the sure. key parameters that, that you think you have to have a handle on to understand that system. How many are actually identified and how many are actually partially known and how many well, are also that's not, missing? That's not entirely a well-defined question. So here's what we know. There are about 8,000 connections um, among those 302 neurons. Uh, we know very little about the neurophysiology, the actually electrical properties of each of the neurons. One of the things that we know is that they don't seem to spike. Uh, so uh, the kind of model neurons that we've been using, I think, are actually fair representations of them. There are, however, nonlinear response characteristics to the neurons, most of which have never been characterized except at the sensory level. Um, we don't know the signs of, as far as I know, any of the connections, um, let alone the magnitudes. So we're mostly talking about so I guess this is what I'm saying. If you fix a neural model, like the one we're using, then I can calculate a number of parameters we're mm -hmm. talking about. But you can't really fix a neural model either because to use the model like we're using is based on the knowledge that C. elegans neurons don't spike, that they have certain sort of nonlinear characteristics in synaptic transmission, and so on. But uh, those details are likely to become richer as you actually start to do neurophysiology on the individual cell. So like I said, we know there are... Uh, current channels, active, you know, voltage-gated and chemically-gated current channels in C. elegans neurons. Mm -hmm. So they're not just passive membrane, right. okay? Mm -hmm. um, 
once you start doing voltage clamp-like dissections of those things, you're going to be building more complicated models of the neurons, and the number of parameters would be going up. So it will be more incremental approach, you're saying. It's yeah? always got to mm -hmm. be incremental. Right. I mean, even in something that's quote-unquote as simple as mm -hmm. C. elegans is, is still quite complicated, mm -hmm. and you've got to make a cut somewhere. Mm -hmm. We're doing the same thing with the body. I mean, you know, we're not... the. the as, as this last talk pointed out, um, if you just look at the somatic cells in C. elegans, not the germline cells, there are about a thousand, just under a thousand cells in the entire body. Okay, we're not modeling at that level mm -hmm. at all. So we, for example, model muscle at a much higher level than the individual muscle cells. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're always making cuts and they're always provisional because as your model progresses and as it engages with experiments, it's going to need to be refined. Right, but uh, it's also to follow up on this, this whole question of how, many, how, much of how many of the gaps can you fill in with the genetic algorithms, right? Right, uh, right. so... Also with these, with these kinds of brains, you have to think about the, the kinds of neurotransmission they use, which is also to learn, with all sorts of strange peptides we barely understand and so on. Yep. So how do you get a handle on that? Well, again, you, you, get, you get a handle on it by, by not wringing one's hands about how complicated life is, but diving in. <laughs> right. you, you have to make some cuts. And, and this is why I'm a big, big advocate of models being involved very, very early in mm. the process. As I mentioned in my talk, I really don't like the idea that we don't have enough data yet to start to model. I think it's much better um, to jump in with a model and don't be overly enamored of your model. Mm -hmm. Models are almost always wrong. In fact, right. they're basically always wrong. Mm -hmm. But some models are wrong in interesting ways mm -hmm. that, that focus you on what additional things you might need to know right. and so on. And I think that's that's what's important mm -hmm. about it. But going back to your question, I mean, I, I, I don't know how to put a number on it. Certainly, that's a problem with optimization techniques. You can't just have 8,000, let alone say 800,000 or something free parameters and expect to, to get any kind of a useful sample running it, you know, a few thousand times or something like that. Um, but rather than try to solve that problem in, den in general, like I said, we jump in with a particular level of abstraction and we put a stake down and then mm -hmm. we can start looking at making predictions, some of which may be verified, many of which, of course, are going to be knocked down and use that to start refining. Where do we need to put the effort? What things can we assume? And the other thing is data is always coming along. Mm -hmm. There are new techniques now that are going to make neurophysiology and C. elegans easier than it's been um, right. for decades. Mm -hmm. And that's going to start providing information that we don't have to use a genetic right. algorithm to fill in anymore. But I'm, I guess I'm just worried on the scaling problem that you, you, in your toy model system, you say, well, okay, let's evolve these uh, systems that can match the behavioral criteria, right. and then we'll apply information theory, dynamic systems theory to look at them. And you then really focus in on, I think you said 10 models and, and one in real detail. Yeah. Now, with uh, C. elegance, maybe you have the same constraint from behavior, but maybe there'll be such a huge number of models that can potentially fit that. And then when you try to apply your lenses to that, how are you gonna well, select? So we've do, what we've done in Seligans is exactly the same as what we did right. here. So we, we look at the population, uh, we study in detail, usually the best couple, and then we start asking how much of what we learned in those in-depth studies generalize to a broader set. And what you start do, finding is that many of the details of what you discovered in that analysis don't generalize, but there's some level of description that resulted from your analysis, which starts to, you see, recurring over multiple additional ones. And so, I mean, that's the only way I know how to do it. Without mm -hmm. automated techniques, you can't do the whole population, right? Um, and you have to analyze some in detail because a priori, you don't know where the right line is, where mm -hmm. the cut is. So you've got to go through one in detail or a few in detail, mm -hmm. and then you start 
In some sense, you do internal hypothesis testing just with the model itself. Well, okay, looking at that detail, I would suggest, I would guess that that neuron's always go, that connection's always going to be inhibitory. Oops, here's mm -hmm. three examples that that's not true. Okay, that's too low a level. Let's try a slightly higher level of, of description. And so you start doing some testing there until you find, oh, at this level of description that I, that I can make, it actually seems to start to generalize across a significant fraction of the mm -hmm. population. So now you also introduce us to a number of information theoretic measures yeah. that you use as a complement to the dynamical systems lens on your on these uh, synthetic agents. Yes. So on, uh, there are the obvious information, mutual information measures, but you also introduced a few new ones. So why, what, what are these measures and why did you feel you had to introduce them? Well, I mean, so part of the, the, the biggest problem, I think, is that mutual information, the sort of real workhorse, as far as I'm concerned, of information theory, uh, is an average over many, many different things. And if you want to understand more details about the information flow in a system, you need to start to unroll that average, start looking at some of the things that are normally being averaged over. So two of the things I talked about was you can unroll over time. So you can start to see that some component carries information at one point in time that's quite different than the information it carries at another point in time. And that's part of what information flow is all about. How does this, these patterns of information across the system change over time? And you also find that if you unroll over um, the stimulus values, the actual possible outcomes of experiments on your, on your variable that you're exploring, you start to see patterns there too, that some elements may carry much less information about some range of the stimulus than they do other ranges. So those are the ideas there. Um, and that's not really us. Those are measures that are in the literature which just haven't traditionally been applied mm -hmm. in the way that we're applying them. Then you get into dynamic measures, and that's a much more complicated area. You want to be able to talk about things like um, when elements gain or lose information and how you quantify gain or loss and, and how information is transferred from one element to another. And part of the problem, the whole metaphor of flow for information is a little misleading because information isn't conserved like mass is or something like that in a liquid. So you can't just talk about, well, it went down here, it went up there, therefore there was some kind of a transfer. You need to, you need to be more, compli more complicated than that. And part of it involves characterizing information between more than two variables, so-called multivariate mutual mm -hmm. information. And that, as I mentioned in my talk, is a very, very uh, active area of research with a lot of different ideas about what properties a mutual information measure ought to have, um, and the particular measures we took are based on our particular way of looking at that, which, which itself is somewhat complicated. There are several different levels of, of things we've put forward, some of which are fairly uncontroversial and some of which are much more controversial. Mm -hmm. And so the main point there is that I guess what I, the lesson I would take from that is that in trying to understand these simple toy agents, we ended up pushing the tools of information theory mm -hmm. in a particular way, which I think is probably going to be important for applying those tools, mm -hmm. for example, to C. elegans. Right. Okay. So even if there were no other benefit to have been gained mm -hmm. from analyzing these toy models, and I believe that there is additional benefit to, uh, that's been gained, um, that tool development, I think, is actually mm -hmm. very, very important. But then you also introduced measures of information that started to include time. So yes. does that mean you actually start to merge the dynamical systems view with well, the information theoretic view? It's not a matter of merging it. There's actually a, a significant uh, 
subset of work in information theory that's interested in dynamic information. What I think, again, the way I like to look at it is these two, you have these two distinct lenses, and it's interesting to ask what's the relationship between the two. So your intuition is exactly right. If information is changing over time, and dynamics is about changes in state over time, then one would think that there's some interesting bridges to be mm -hmm. built there. And that's exactly what we've tried to do mm -hmm. in the part of the talk I wasn't right. able, able mm -hmm. to get to, is show you in some detail how, for example, the structure of these manifolds of states that show up as being so important when you look at the dynamical systems lens are exactly can be exactly related to the information mm -hmm. measures that, you, that show up when you right. uh, use information mm -hmm. theory. But now you could also imagine that you would like to bring it back to causal interaction in your network, right? And, and the dynamical systems view or the information uh, theoretic view doesn't necessarily give you that automatically. It doesn't necessarily, yeah. no. I mean, yeah. given that we're doing our dynamical analysis at the level of the fundamental states of the system, it yeah. actually ends up being a causal story. But you're right that dynamical systems theory itself isn't intrinsically causal or not because point, you right? can generate look at yeah. collective variables where where it's not directly so, causal. So anymore. the question so is, do you feel that you have to now insert a third lens that that gets you a more systematic handle on the causal interaction? I don't view that as a different. Again, remember for me the lenses are the mathematical tools. So mm -hmm. for example, you can you could apply the dynamical systems lens at multiple levels, and in fact, I think the way causality works in science is so if you if you describe this if you look at a system at one level it's always ever going to be a description you look at a system at two levels and you look at bridging the lower level and the higher level then you're talking about causality mm -hmm. and we as you noticed in the talk typically look at two levels the, we have the level right. of behavior which is the, our high level, and we have the level of, say, the, the, me, the mechanical and the neural states that are mm -hmm. involved, which for us is the, is the causal level because there is no lower physics below that. Right. And so I think we're always talking about uh, causal explanations, but you're right, it's not intrinsic to a given That's mathematical right. lens. Yeah, I agree exactly. with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then um, when you were summarizing, so uh, these were the examples that you used to introduce these, th this approach. Uh, what I called methods, but you call it language and, and lenses. Um, so, but in some sense, then if if you then sort of step back a little bit and say, okay, but what have we achieved with this over the last twenty five years? About I would think, no, you're in this domain for a while. You had quite a list of of phenomena that you, that that you were alluding to, or that you were saying, look, we have a handle on these phenomena in some way with yes. this approach, right? And this mm -hmm. this was starting chemotaxis, but then you talked also about attention, about a minimally cognitive agent. You talked mm -hmm. about learning, mm -hmm. right? So is it what makes for instance, the the agent we have just discussed? Why what makes that agent minimally cognitive? Oh, okay, that's a good question. I never got a chance to respond to right. uh, with Tony. Um, so to explain it, I have to give you just a tiny little bit of history. Um, and that is that when I first started doing this work, as you may know, uh, the first examples were locomotion. Right. That, was, yeah. that was what I, I – and I, there is when I focused on the importance of the feedback through the body. And, and this whole brain-body environment idea was originally coming from looking at motor control like locomotion. And I and others that were doing this kind of work at the time felt that the kinds of lessons that we were learning about brain-body environment systems by studying these motor control tasks had more general applicability. Mm -hmm. okay? But the problem is if you go to, for example, a cognitive science audience and talk about walking, they're not impressed. Okay? True. So 
different people mean different things by minimally cognitive. The way I defined minimally cognitive in the first paper where I used that term was it is basically behavior. It's the simplest behavior that uh, raises genuinely cognitive issues. And how I evaluate that is very simple. If you present walking to an audience of cognitive scientists, nobody cares. Mm -hmm. okay? You present categorization or a selective attention or something like that, a referential communication. These are all things we've looked at to an audience of cognitive science people. They sit up and they're interested in what you have to say. Mm -hmm. So I'm not making, taking any theoretical position in the notion of minimally cognitive as to what is or isn't cognitive. Okay. It's simply saying there's a certain level of sophistication of the behavior that has to be recognized as being cognitively interesting by the cognitive science mm -hmm. community so that we can engage them with these issues about brain-body-environment systems and the role of dynamics and so on. But So I took it to mean that your agent has a minimal memory and as a result it can maintain information over time and that gives it then a let's say a cognitive state yeah so i mean if 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 for you memory is one of those key trigger issues mm -hmm. then then absolutely that's fine no, no, I, no, I but, think but, that but some of the tasks we've looked at that i call minimally cognitive don't have memory associated mm -hmm. with them okay but then so what makes me feel a bit uneasy is that you're saying look i'm using a label that's not necessarily exactly accurate for what I do, like minimal cognitive, but it helps me to communicate what I do to a certain community, right? Well, in my perspective, cognition has a very specific definition that's almost domain independent, or it has to be, otherwise we're not making progress in science. And there, cognition is always tied to some forms of knowledge, right? This is also how it is defined. So that would mean there is some aspect of knowledge acquisition, retention, and expression that makes a system cognitive. And as, so is, is that a, is that a, so, and I felt that you're more loose about oh, this. Oh, I, I absolutely am. I'm, I'm trying to explain it. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's not as simple as you just said. If you go and ask a room full of cognitive scientists, uh, actually, let's do it this way. If you mm -hmm. separated them mm -hmm. so they're not all in the same room and asked them individually how they would characterize what is and isn't cognitive, you would likely get as many answers as there are people sure. that you ask. And that's yeah. why, I like I mean, like everything else I've been saying, I, don't, I think it's premature. I don't think we have an accepted definition of what mm -hmm. cognitive is. But what we do have is a field that studies mm -hmm. uh, cognition. And they have a set of, of intuitions about what is or isn't mm -hmm. sufficiently cognitive to be worth study by mm -hmm. that field. And all I'm saying is that uh, some of our toy models, if they're going to have anything to say to cognitive science as a field, needs to engage those mm -hmm. intuitions. So if for you it's memory, then some of the things I listed under that list of minimally cognitive behavior probably wouldn't count for you, but others would. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. That, that I have well, no problem with that. So, this, so. Is, this is something that I would object to because I think it's really important that as a field, we do try to converge on definitions because otherwise we cannot phrase our hypothesis in yeah. a coherent way. I wouldn't disagree right? with that need, but I'm just, what I'm trying to do is tell you is realistically the state of the field at the moment, sure. I don't think you would disagree. No, no is, sure, is as absolutely. I no, no, so so I, I've actually been a little unhappy that other people have used the word minimally cognitive to mean something more than that, mm -hmm. that, that somehow uh, there, there is a line that's been put forward that was, where something above that line is cognitive and something below that line isn't. Um, I just didn't mean it. Mm -hmm. by okay. that by that term others may have a definition mm -hmm. I, I'm aware of a number of, of number of different sort of fundamental definitions like one that comes out of uh, Maturana and Varela's work about mm -hmm. what's cognitive which is that's another area of work that I'm involved in right. um, but I don't 
I don't feel a need to subscribe or not to mm -hmm. such an issue uh, in order to say that, look, some of the, the brain-body-environment models that we're developing are engaging issues of interest to mm -hmm. cognitive science. I think, I mean, so, so in your list you had, uh, I think, items like working memory, or was it short-term memory? Short-term memory, yeah. yeah. And I, uh, I can, I, each of those is, is a specific, yeah. Uh, yeah, each of those is a very specific but, task. Yeah, yeah but, but actually that maps onto something which, to you, is not a direct analog of those high, uh, phenomena the way we might think of them in uh, uh, mammals. And, yeah, uh, how the could they be with, with, you know, a dozen neurons right. or okay, something like but, that? But on the other hand, you, you defined a couple of, of I think relatively new terms like information offloading, information yeah, I didn't self-structuring. Define, those okay. are both terms from the literature. Uh, would you, uh, are those in the same category of things that uh, are, are perhaps high-level cognitive structures? No, so, no. Okay, that, so they're that, in a different that, category. So can yeah, you but, explain but, the difference? Uh, well, I didn't list those under what you're talking about. I, I know. About. No, no, so, no. They, yeah, they yeah. appeared in the talk. Yeah, so, so, so why no, are those they, different? So um, those terms have been developed in information theory, or, or more correctly, in the application of information theory to, let's say, animals. I'm trying to be very general about it, rather than just necessarily cognitive systems. So information offloading is a term where you take information that's inside the system and you put it outside the system for a while, and then you later re-interact with that offloaded information to sort of bring it back into the operation of the system. I can't tell you who who um, defined it originally, but one of the earlier papers that I read was uh, by Olaf Sporns and Max Longarella, mm -hmm. uh, where that term was used. Information self-structuring is is similar. Mm -hmm. uh, in that case, it's it's that you you move your body around so as to elicit information from the environment that's not necessarily there passively for you to pick up on. But in so those aren't tasks. They're not. They're not, if you look at a textbook in cognitive, in cognitive science, you're not going to find a section on information offloading. You will find a section on short-term memory mm -hmm. and, and language, let's say, rather than communication and, um, and relational categorization. Those are things you'll find in a textbook. So they're just two different sorts of terms. I, I'm not entirely sure because you do then alluded to examples of how people offload information, for instance, yes, by writing but, things Yeah, I, no, in fact, that's very yeah. interesting. I mean, uh, it's a more recent... It's a more recent uh, component of the vocabulary of cognitive science to talk about things like offloading. So maybe eventually there will be a chapter in a cognitive science or cognitive psychology book about such things. There are certainly people like David Kirsch that have been arguing, um, you know, how we organize our environments is a really key component of our cognitive processes. So, I mean, there's precedent for that, but it's, it's just not the traditional um, set of topics you would see in cognitive science. But I mean, but on that basis, maybe there's a, uh, an argument you could make that let's redefine some of these other concepts that have been knocking around cognitive science based on the sure. things we can see in your Sure. Your well, in fact, I mean, if you look at, so each of the things I listed on that final slide, there's at least one paper, usually several papers on. I mean, each one of those makes a specific set of arguments about how the results of analyzing that agent suggest we should look at this process very differently than it's traditionally mm -hmm. been looked at. I mean, that's kind of the modus operandi of the, of the research program is to keep doing that. So the stuff on learning that you mentioned, for example, uh, specifically looks at an issue uh, related to learning without synaptic plasticity. That's mm -hmm. sort of the argument there that you, that you well, I won't get into the details, <laughs> but I mean, the fa each one of them has exactly that feature that perhaps... We, this no, but so maybe this is a challenge, right? As opposed to say like, well, I just relabel and I hope that people aren't happy with what I'm saying. Maybe it is really about redefining 
Right, this is, I think, also Tony's Yeah, I mean, in the end, but, so now you're going to make me um, record a, a, a strong statement here. Yes, please. But, I mean, in <laughs> the end, I'm not sure that cognition or cognitive is a useful, scientifically useful term. Mm-hmm. I think it tries to slice up things that, um, that ultimately they're just various mm-hmm. kinds of behavior that, for example, mm-hmm. to your memory point, are more or less driven by internal dynamics versus external dynamics. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the reasons why I, why I may be acting mm-hmm. as if I'm being coy about it, mm-hmm. but I fundamentally, I'm just not sure it's a useful term, mm-hmm. just like I'm not sure representation is really a useful sure. term. Mm-hmm. So rather than arguing about mm-hmm. it, which is something I used to do, I just don't use it, mm-hmm. and, I find, and I find I've lost nothing okay. um, by, mm-hmm. by removing that term right. from my vocabulary and talking mm-hmm. just about internal state and mm-hmm. so no, I see on. your point but I do believe to make progress in the field certainly about building up a psychology or a cognitive science we do have to get clarity on the constructs we're going to use because they have to drive our theory that's certainly right? true but mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to clarify cognition if Absolutely. for example that's not no, no. necessarily the right concept maybe we should forget about I, it I, and I, replace yeah. it with yeah. better defined constructs. Yeah. Right? The other thing is, if it is a useful distinction, I think eventually it will become clear how mm-hmm. we ought to define it. Right. But trying to define it before we really know what we're talking mm-hmm. about just seems premature to me. It's kind of sure. like defining mass, mm-hmm. you know, before you have any notion of Newton's second law, which, by the way, the notion of mass there is completely different than it mm-hmm. is in general relativity. I mean, mm-hmm. so it, it itself was right. a changing, mm-hmm. and mass is a much simpler concept mm-hmm. than cognition. So. Right. So, Randy, now, you, you have met over the last, let's say, 25, 30 years being active and really pushing a very specific agenda with great success, um, also influencing many people in, in their work. Um, what would be Randy's law that people should adhere to to make progress in understanding brain, body, and environment? Yeah, so I don't, I don't know. I don't have a particular law that I can think no? of. What I would suggest is that... Um, I think these days, the fact that so many people take for granted the idea of brain-body-environment systems as just the proper unit of analysis has come out of the line of work in, that I was a part of, at least. Um, certainly many other people have, mm-hmm. have pushed that line, too. But I think it's much harder to argue with that view than it was when we, some of us were first starting out, mm-hmm. um, kind of as voices in the wilderness. Um, I hope... Uh, something else that's come out of the work I've done is just how important dynamical systems theory and the concepts of dynamical systems are as at least part of the toolbox. That also was something that was very, very, very controversial Mm -hmm. um, when we started out. Mm -hmm. Um, I hope, this is one thing I think that's that's still in progress, that this notion of the toy models have a really important role to play in the development Mm -hmm. of theory in uh, the behavioral and brain sciences. That's Mm -hmm. That's a somewhat more unusual position, mm-hmm. and it's one I've been pushing for a while, but I, I hope that eventually that will sink in as, again, not the only way to proceed, mm-hmm. but an important component right. of theory. And most recently, I hope uh, that if we reformulate some of the key concepts in information theory, that it'll actually turns out to be another really mm-hmm. useful tool that's not in competition with something like dynamical systems, right. but is a, mm-hmm. is a great augmentation mm-hmm. to it. Which, then, by the way, I still get a lot of... So I give the talk like this at a group that's full of dynamical systems mm-hmm. people, and they just can't believe the words that are coming out of my mouth, <laughs> right? Okay. Uh, so, so although that may be obvious for some people, for mm-hmm. others that are clinging to, you know... The problem, I think, is, is, is conflating information theory as a math- body of mathematics mm-hmm. with information processing mm-hmm. as a notion that the brain pushes symbols around. And that's why mm-hmm. I'm so insistent about this lens distinction. No, it's, it's only because helpful. I want to make sure that people mm-hmm. understand I'm talking about the lens and not the sort of 
of no framework right. that that people were were previously mm-hmm. associating with right. information processing. But it would mean Randy's law would be like, don't worry about taking a minority view. <laughs> oh, I see. Would, okay. that be, would that be fair to say? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it can be dangerous too, right? Sure, absolutely. So, but look I mean, where it got you. I mean, <laughs> but for but for me, uh, you know, the, the science is most interesting at sort of the the boundaries and mm. the limits of what you're doing. And so, right. it's it's not necessarily good career advice for a student mm-hmm. sometimes that you should sort of jump to a boundary and start pushing really hard and loudly, but it certainly worked pretty well for me, and I'm not right. sure I could have done it any other way. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a personality thing. I, right. Sort of normal science, I mm-hmm. guess, doesn't engage me as mm-hmm. much as sort of really pushing at conceptual boundaries right. and, and things so like now, that. So now, uh, Tony likes traveling, and soon EasyJet will fly to the States as well, including Indiana, so we can send it for little money to your lab, and we're going to do that four years from now, so Tony can test a, a prediction you're going to make today. So... What specific prediction could you make now that you will see tested and validated four years from now and maybe rejected, but a specific prediction? Well, so, uh, oh, you mean predictions about the field or predictions Science, about some experimental? What you do, what they, the work you do, like take the C. elegans work or, or any other system you're working on, really specific scientific prediction that you, that you will see tested. Well, so, I mean... The problem is I don't want to talk about unpublished work, and so all I can talk about is work we've published, and it's actually most of our predictions were actually successfully tested in it that. It could be more general than that, perhaps, mm-hmm. you know, sort of what the field of C. elegans well, well, so, I mean, know in four years' time. Anything Tony can test. <laughs> well, I, more general is easier. I mean, I, I, would re- I really think it's within reach. Four years is short. I, I would maybe think it's decade long or so. Decade. But I really think it's within reach to imagine having a complete um, neuromechanical behavioral model of C. elegans. You That's said not, 10 years? Yeah. Okay. I think ten I years is cool. is yeah. is, <laughs> is pushing it. Now that's not that's I don't know if that's a prediction or not. But I mean, even a year ago, I might not have said that because it was only over the past year that we had mm. these new optical techniques that can image brain activity right, exactly. of a whole animal at the level of individual cells. Exactly. That I think is ultimately going to be really really important. But it's going to take some time for that to mm. move into. Uh, the scientific toolkit of the experimentalists Mm -hmm. that study the system and therefore can better constrain Mm -hmm. the modelers. Great. Well, Randy Beer, thank you very much for this conversation. All right. Thank you. you. Well, that was fun. Was it? Yeah. Good. (laughs) The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biometics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Program. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biometrics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.